Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their name names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen from me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I invite you now to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 20. The Gospel of John has held a special place to me in my own journey of faith. Uh, When I first committed my life to Christ, someone urged me to spend a lot of time reading the Gospel of John. And so I did. Uh, And I've returned to it frequently over the years. And probably my most recent kind of immersion into the Gospel of John uh, was about two years ago at one of the lower spots of my life. Someone introduced me to a work that was essentially a devotional commentary on the Gospel of John. And I have read and reread that book uh, multiple times. And in this book, the author particularly invites us to take a fresh look at what he calls the mystery of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And I think it's a pertinent call. I found it deeply thought-provoking and challenging to my faith and my relationship to Jesus, the Christ. And I invite you today to join me on a journey through the Gospel of John. Uh, Unlike the study of Genesis that we did uh, over quite a number of years, I'm going to try to avoid the the intensive deep dives and try to do a bit more of a survey. And it will have to be a bit modular, so hopefully each sermon will kind of stand alone. But I decided to take today as kind of the launch of that. And I simply called the sermon, The Gospel of John, an introduction. Now, I have have you to know, I have a bunch of other titles as well for this sermon. Uh, That's the one that got published. Probably my favorite, and it kind of survived the weekend of study. It survived last night's sleep, and it was kind of with me this morning. And I think this title might actually work well and describe kind of the heart, the soul of the sermon 
And that title is Loved by Jesus and Fully Alive. Loved by Jesus and Fully Alive. Let's read together uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. A little unusual, I'm sure, to go close to the end of the book for the introduction. But this book, unlike many books of the Bible, has a very explicit statement about why the author wrote the book. And as we pay attention to the author's stated purpose, and maybe just to be theologically correct and precise here, of the writer's stated purpose, uh, we think understand Scripture to have one author, which is God himself, many different writers. And so this is the writer, but we believe God is speaking to us through him. He states his purpose very explicitly here. John chapter 20, uh, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is John's theology in a nutshell. That's the summary of the Gospel of John. And in a sense, we might say it's the summary of all of John's writings in the New Testament. Written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. To what end? For what purpose should we believe that? So that we have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, as we read scripture, we believe it is one of your highest intentions and your deepest resolves that your son Jesus, his name would be lifted up so that all people would be drawn to him. In this season where we celebrate his incarnation, his coming into the world as a, as a child, as a baby, as an infant. May our eyes be turned toward him. And may your intention and the desire of the author of this text be realized here today. That we would affirm in our hearts, Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. And that through our surrender of faith, to him, we would know the life that he brings into our world. We ask through your son Jesus today. Amen. Now, we're not going to spend much time looking at the context here, but if you'll just do a quick glance up, what precedes this kind of, what sounds like a summary concluding statement, is the story of Jesus and Thomas interacting after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus was resurrected. He appeared to his disciples, a group of his disciples. Thomas was not there. They tell Thomas, you know, Jesus, this rabbi we've been following for three years, we all saw him crucified, buried. He's alive. 
He showed up. We saw him with our eyes. And Thomas said, I can't believe that. Unless I see with my eyes and touch with my hands, I can't believe that. Jesus shows up to Thomas, and knowing Thomas's questions, says to him very specifically, Thomas, hands, see them? See the wound in my side? Here I am. Thomas's response is the classic Christian confession, the central Christian creed. Jesus, my Lord and God. And it's at the close of that story that John writes these words. I'm giving you these stories, this one specifically, but all the ones documented in the Gospel of John. These signs, these signposts I'm planting, I'm planting for one specific purpose, so that you, the listeners, the hearers, the readers, will believe that this man, Jesus, is the anointed one, is the Christ, is the Son of God. And to what end are you to believe that? So that you may have life through his name. Have life through his name. John is writing this, most scholars believe, quite late in his life. Possibly well into his 90s. And I don't know how many 90-year-olds you've known. But there's, there's this unique blend of wisdom, insight, and warm sentiment that blends in the elderly years. Uh, youngsters tend to have one or the other, but it kind of converges in old age. John, probably well into his 90s, now nearly 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, is writing these words. The church has now been established for 60 years. There are believers in Jerusalem, throughout Asia, on up into Rome, and there are many of these assemblies worshiping Jesus. Jews and Gentiles, those who saw and those who did not see, and yet believed like us. And this has become the central mission of John's life and is now the work of his legacy, his legacy that we hold in our hands. Those of us who have not seen Jesus, have not witnessed his signs, the miracles, or his post-resurrection appearances, and yet have come to faith and continue in faith in this man Jesus who was Israel's Messiah, Israel's anointed one, Israel's anointed priest, Israel's anointed prophet, Israel's anointed king, and the very Son of God, God incarnate. It's so easy for this to slip from the center of our consciousness and for our faith to get sidetracked into all sorts of little alleys, cul-de-sacs, and byways. Granted, they're all a part of the landscape, but the very central root of Christianity, the court square or the Capitol Hill around which all else takes its orientation, is this very simple confession. Jesus 
is the Christ, the Son of God. This Jesus that much of the world is celebrating, and yet many don't believe. This Jesus, the one around whom we gather here this morning. This Jesus, the man who lived, who died, who was resurrected from the dead nearly 2,000 years ago in the hills of what today is modern Israel. A man who actually lived among us. That this man is the Christ, the Son of God. He was one of us, like unto us. And that this man was God come to visit his people. Really, when you look at it from a bit of a distance, a most remarkable claim. And yet, for us, so often it's become so commonplace, so kind of assumed religiously, that we fail to grasp its life-altering significance. John is on a mission to bring back through the gospel of Jesus, through the announcing of this gospel, all that had been severed in the tragic fall of humanity. And Jesus has come to achieve that recreation. Death and darkness had invaded the earth. Jesus, who is himself light and life, is coming from the heavens God's dwelling place coming to our earth to redeem, to rebirth, and recreate a new society for the new world. Heaven and earth are intersecting again, just like they did in the Garden of Eden before the fall. God and man in the same space. That's what's happening in the incarnation. And... When heaven touches earth, dead things come to life. In an age where science is the preferred way of knowing, and I've had multiple conversations recently with people who are calling into question religious claims of Christianity and saying they're simply not verifiable scientifically. And so they have a high level of skepticism about the verity or truth claims of Christianity. How can you verify these claims through the scientific method? Well, you can't actually. And faith is not in vogue today. Knowledge has to be rooted in science. Knowledge has to be rooted in reason. John is inviting us to something different. We face the age-old challenge of believing what cannot be absolutely verified through the scientific method. These are matters of faith, not unreasonable, but they do invite us to believe what we cannot ultimately definitively prove. But like all relationships, even with people who we see in the flesh, Spouses, friends, 
church family. All those relationships take an aspect of faith. And those of you who've been married for 10, 15, 20 years now know things about your spouse that you didn't know when you first got married. There's there's a whole lot of trusting faith in place at the marriage altar that day. And if the relationship's going to work today, even after 20, 30 years, there's going to have to be a whole lot of trusting faith present in that relationship. Things you just don't know. And I'm going to suggest can't know. Just so the relationship with Jesus. We're in a process of development and growth as individuals. Jesus isn't necessarily. But this development and growth includes painful disruption and reorientation at times. And it forces the continuous movement of relationship so that our relationships are constantly changing, maturing, and growing. Uh, Rose and I have been married for 32 years, rapidly approaching 33. And, you know, I think I'm married to the same person I married 32 years ago. And she thinks she's married to the same person. But we're very different people than we were 32 years ago. Very, very different people. Some things haven't changed. Unfortunately, some of the things that haven't changed are the things that ought to have changed. You know how that goes. Okay. Some of those things haven't changed. Some things, fortunately, have changed. But some marriage expert um, I read recently said that each person over the course of his life has five significant relationships. And for those who are truly fortunate, those five significant relationships are with the same person. But we're changing. So the relationship dynamics have to change. And some people, you just look at the data regarding divorce trends. As soon as the person changes or they change, they think it requires a different person that fits their new identity, their new interests. Well, they get married again, and then they've got to learn to adapt after all, all over again. So Jesus urges us to stick to the covenant of marriage and allow that relationship dynamic to shape us and reshape us. And our relationship to Jesus, I believe, is no different. It's not that Jesus changes, but we are in a process of change and growth and maturity. And so our relationship to Jesus will have many different and significant Changes along the way. Our situations force us to change and rethink our faith. And we revisit the significance of Jesus in very specific situations in our lives. And we see different aspects of Jesus and his saving gospel for us from different vantage points. And as I observe, I should say, first of all, as I've experienced my own journey of faith, And as I've observed the journey of other people's faith, the relationship is at times one of giddy lovers. You've seen these. And the Jesus movement of the 60s represented kind of that aspect. 
of a man in love with Jesus. Other times, a man's relationship to Jesus looks more like one, like that of a a disappointed friend. We had thought Jesus would come through for us in a specific way, but he hasn't. We asked him, we begged him, we pled with him. And he hasn't come through in the way we had hoped. And we're back trying to figure out, so what does this mean to believe in this Jesus who is responding differently than we had expected? There's the relationship of a seasoned test of life where someone has lived with Jesus through very difficult times, possibly the loss of a loved one, some deep sorrow, or some inexpressible joy, or people who had hopes and dreams, but they were shattered in disappointment and heartache. But they stuck it out. They stuck it out. They adapted and adjusted. They tuned in to what this relationship and this Jesus is about. And there resulted a new and deeper love of knowing. John understands this. I don't think any of us could have had a more diverse, in some ways a more intimate journey with Jesus than the Apostle John did. And now 90 years old, in his 90s, he writes this gospel, still saying, this Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And believing in him results in life. Who is this John? He never in the book identifies himself by name. He only identifies himself in relationship to Jesus. And I want you to note some of these specifically. Flip back to John 13. He has a way of talking about himself. John 13, verse 23. The scene here is the upper room, one of Jesus' last days, which his disciples didn't necessarily know. They're reclining at table. And uh, for those of you who are not culturally aware of those days, they didn't sit on chairs at tables. They reclined on pillows around a very low table. And so, your feet kind of behind you, the other person in front of you to your right, kind of behind you to your left, often in a U-shape. So you could pretty much see everybody around, and likely that's the position of the 12 here as they're having this meal with Jesus. And in verse 23, we read this. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, As though he didn't the others? Okay, we'll just leave that one hanging a moment. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Okay, and then we note that he had to actually have been at his right side. Because Simon Peter motions to this disciple whom Jesus loved, 
and said, ask Jesus who this is that he's speaking about who's going to betray him. Ask him. And this disciple leans back, we read elsewhere, on Jesus' bosom, leans back on his chest and says, Jesus, who is it? We're talking about a very intimate space, a very intimate conversation. And we see that this was the kind of relationship John had to Jesus. The Gospel of John chapter 19, another reference to whom most scholars believe is the author. 19 verse 26. Jesus now is on the cross dying, breathing his last breath. And in verse 26, he looks out and he sees his mother. And who else does he see? The disciple whom he loved. Standing nearby. And he said to his mother, Woman, your son. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Okay, we believe this was John. John and Mary. And in Jesus' hour of deepest need, he says to John, Can you look after my mom? She had no one else. And John took her in. The last chapter of John, John chapter 21, verse 7. They're back out fishing. And you'll notice throughout the Gospels, Peter and John have something going on repeatedly. And I'll reference that in just a moment. But here they are again. They're out fishing. Kind of return to the old trade. And they're out in the boat and they see someone on the shore. Just as the day's breaking, they don't know who it is initially. John spots him and says, ah, it's the Lord. 21 verse 7, he's the first to identify him. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, Peter does the Peter-ish thing, immediately just gets in the water, goes to Jesus. John's kind of tuned in here, reflective and thoughtful. Peter just does stuff, thinks about it afterwards. It's interesting that kind of relationship these two guys have. And it's interesting that both of them are in Jesus' inner circle of friends. Along with... Incidentally, John's probably older brother, which most certainly had to have some interesting dynamics occasionally. Little brother tagging along, and Jesus seems to kind of have it in with him. But, you know, the Peter, James, and John of the infamous sailboat, that's the inner circle. And we see them repeatedly in those intimate moments with Jesus, but of that intimate circle of three, John is noted as the one Jesus loved. This book is written by a man who knows he was deeply loved 
by this Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He knows he was deeply loved. I just ask you to consider for a moment. Ask yourself the question, honestly, how would your life change? If you knew you were loved that way by the Messiah. Loved by Jesus. Deeply loved by Jesus. A very intimate relationship. And also most likely a very youthful relationship. Again, Tradition, most scholars believe John was probably the youngest of the disciples. And during the three years of Jesus' ministry, three to four years of Jesus' ministry, it's very possible he was 13 to about 17 years old. When he walked with Jesus as a disciple. And now here he is, possibly 17, 18 years old. And this John is responsible for the care of Jesus' mother. And I ask you just to consider, just allow your imagination to go to work on, our, on, on behalf of this story for a moment. Jesus has died. The one whom Mary held closely in her heart. The one that John knew the love of like he had known no other human love. And that night, John and Mary go home to John's house. And Jesus is dead and buried. Can you imagine what the conversations might have been like? Can you imagine the conversations Saturday morning when they wake up? Jesus, gone. Can you imagine Sunday morning? And while we don't know the details of what occurred, we do know that John and Peter go to the tomb, okay, and true to character, John gets there first, but he stops outside. He looks in, and given to reflection and contemplation, he's there pondering. And I can only imagine the flood of Jesus' words coming back through his mind. And here's an empty tomb. Peter does what Peter does. He just barges in. What we hear next is John believes. It all comes together for John. John says, he's alive. This is resurrected Messiah. Peter has not yet believed. He's brashly exploring what's going on in this empty tomb, trying to figure it out. Can you imagine the conversations of John and Mary during Jesus' appearances and disappearances? Leading up to Pentecost, and then the conversations about Jesus after Pentecost. And when Peter 
has preached that sermon and 3,000 people on one day have confessed faith in Jesus. Can you imagine the dinner conversation that night between John and Mary? It's that John who's writing these words to say to you, I'm telling you these stories so that they would serve as a signpost to the great reality that this man, Jesus, whom I knew as an intimate friend, he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And if you will believe in him, you will have life in his name. This is the man. And why did he write this gospel? Likely there were already three stories, three accounts of Jesus' life and ministry in circulation. But our text makes it clear. He wanted to document a few significant signs that Jesus did in the presence of the disciples. And he says in John 21, listen, there are lots of others. And depends how you count them, John gives us seven, maybe ten. Scholars say that the Gospels collectively document possibly 35 signs that Jesus did. John picks just a few, some of them only recorded in the Gospel of John. And he says, I want these to serve as signposts so that you look at the sign and you look where the sign is pointing, it becomes apparent to you that Jesus is the Christ and that you will believe in him so that you too can have life in his name. He chose a few. He follows those stories with a lot of discourse and a lot of explanation so that you, the hearer, the reader, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that you may have that life, that eternal life that Jesus has brought into this world through his incarnation, death, and resurrection. Heaven, in the person of Jesus, has touched dying humanity. And when dying humanity opens their hearts to the touch of the incarnate Jesus, there's rebirth, and we have the classic story of rebirth in John chapter 3. There's recreation, a resorting and a rebuilding. There's the recreation of a new society of people that God is preparing for a new world. And this faith and this believing is the conduit, the channel, through which the life-giving, resurrecting power of Jesus flows back into the human story. And you need not be physically present to receive it. You didn't miss out because you weren't born 2,000 years ago. You may not see the way John saw, but John saw and says, Please, you don't need to see to believe. You can believe and to know the life that Jesus brings into the world. And in very quick summary, what are we to believe? What are we to believe to receive this life? And this is, Jesus is the Son of God. This is a very simple message, folks. A very simple message. The Jews had been looking for a Messiah. They had been looking for an anointed one who would deliver them. For some, it was a kingly expectation after the order of David and Solomon that would usher in a peaceful kingdom that would result in their personal flourishing. For some, it was more of a priestly expectation 
one who would mediate between Israel in this time of great difficulty and God that would mediate a soul-satisfying worship of the one true God. For others, it had more of a prophetic expectation. That's why they thought maybe John the Baptist was the guy. A man like Moses, who through word of God established a clear order, clarity of law. To these Jews, John is saying, You've been waiting for that one, that anointed one, whether you saw him anointed as prophet, priest, or king. This man, Jesus, he's the one. He is the anointed one. The Gentiles, the same existential challenges, oppressive rule, troubled souls, confused religion and ethics that left people with an aching void, lost, wandering, and ultimately dying. Searching for answers, John says to them, This Jesus is the anointed one. This Jesus is, in fact, God's anointed one, the Jewish rabbi, in whom and through whom you must order your life and affections. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the supreme prophet, priest, and king. Trust him, believe him, obey him. And then why are we to believe this? Because believing Jesus results in life. Eternal life. And again, this is one of the big themes of the Gospel of John. The various words for life show up, I think, nearly 55 times throughout the Gospel of John. And we are desperately in need of eternal life because what we have as our natural state, in our natural state, is death and dying. We are dying, and death is actually our biggest problem because it is our just due, as the Apostle Paul said to the Romans. The wages or the fair earnings of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Paul's use of the term free gift as it's translated in English, as a bit of a redundant statement that Microsoft, I found, didn't like. They underlined free gift, and I clicked on it to see their recommendation. They said, use concise language. Suggest gift. In other words, a gift is implied to be free. So you got a gift over Christmas season? Did it come with strings attached? Did it come with an invoice? No, it's a gift. It's the nature of gifts. If it, if it doesn't come that way, it's not a gift. But I think the point is driven home here. that This is a gift. It's free to you. Somebody paid. Somebody paid. And it's this Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Who is John speaking to? Again, he makes that fairly clear. He's speaking to you. Whether you have seen Jesus with your eyes or not. 2,000 years since John, he's speaking to you. He's saying to you, believe. So that you too may have life. Now this word believe has its own little challenge. And for the benefit of some of you, about 50% of the old manuscripts give it a present subjunctive 
as in saying, in order that you may continue to believe, so believing you may believe, as in this is written to people who already believe to strengthen, encourage, and build their faith, while the other manuscripts have the aorist subjunctive, which says, in order that you may decisively believe or come to decision to believe. And so scholars debate, is the primary purpose of John evangelistic? Or is it to build up and nurture faith? And honestly, I think it's a mute argument. Because what calls people to faith in Jesus also builds faith in those who already believe. The same gospel that birthed you into the family of God is the gospel we need to hear over and over in all of life's new circumstances so that our relationship with Jesus is developing and growing and our faith becomes deeper and richer and more complete. And as our faith continues to grow, the life of Jesus flows more deeply into our lives. The question is very simple. Have you embraced this good news that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Whether it's the first time or in a renewing sort of way, in your current situation, do you accept and believe and rest in the reality that Jesus is Messiah, God's anointed one, and that he is your only source of life? That if you're going to live, if you're going to be truly alive, it's through him. I urge you, if you're here today and you've not bowed the knee to Jesus, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that you will bow the knee. I urge you today to bow the knee now so that you might know his life and not just his future judgment. And if you find Jesus has been a bit disappointing based on your expectations, life is not at all what you anticipated when you first gave yourself to him. Learn to trust him again, anew, in whatever your situation and circumstance. You'll find the Jesus that rebirthed you into life has much more resource for continued life than you could ever imagine. This message is for you, too. Believe so that you, too, may have life through his name. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, the message here is very simple and yet almost infinite in its richness. Would you today, in this place at this time, by your Spirit, grant us the gift of faith so that our believing in Jesus would result in his eternal life flowing through our veins.
We ask it to the glory of Jesus. Amen.